I want to invite you to open your Bibles to uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, and we're continuing along bit by bit in this story of Elijah. I just want to say that uh, prayer time from Jerry was just absolutely beautiful. I want to thank Jerry for that. I was reflecting on Memorial Day, and these words came to mind, a people who does not honor those who died for liberty does not deserve that liberty. And so we remember those who have fallen on uh, our behalf in this country and also honor those who have served uh, for liberty in our country. And we just thank you for your service. So we pick up 1 Kings 17, and we're going to continue along in the story. Now, up to this point in the story of Elijah, we've been watching Elijah face trials in general, but now we're going to watch him face the one great trial in particular, the D word, death. Ian Proven frames the big question of this story like this. He says, here is the ultimate test of the Lord's authority. It is one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death, But can he do anything when death has clamped tight its jaws and swallowed the victim up? He can act across the border from Israel and Sidon, but is there a border that he ultimately cannot cross, a kingdom in which he has no power? When faced by Mot, and just so you know, Mot is one of the deities of the Canaanite religion. He was actually the god of death, the father of Baal. When faced by Mot, must the Lord, like Baal, bow the knee? This really is the heart of the matter when you think of your life of faith. What ultimate difference does faith in God make if we come to the end, and that is indeed the end? What difference does it make? Last week, we were looking at the immediate value. Remember the widow's situation. She was wondering, where's my next meal going to come from? She couldn't get past that idea. And, and, And we, of course, when we come to faith, we ask that question. Is this faith going to make a difference? Is it going to help me with my problems? Am I going to have a better experience with my family? But here's the thing. The Bible never once promises you that if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that your life will get easier or better. In fact, some of you can relate to this this morning. You came to Christ and things actually got a little harder for you, not easier when you did that. So why? Why do people follow God in faith? Well, I understand those immediate questions that come to our mind, but they matter very little if God is as powerless as the rest of us at that ultimate border, death. That's why this this passage is so eminently practical. Elijah and this widow, they come up to the very brink of this very border, and and God's going to stretch their faith beyond the limits And it's practical because God has stretched some of your faith, many of your faith, at that border. When you've lost someone who you love dearly or you watch someone depart from this world far too soon, 
So as we take a look at this story, we're going to see how God works in the midst of some of our most difficult questions. So let's pick up the story, and we're going to read piecemeal through it. We're going to start with verses 17 and 18. The text says this, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now, when you look at this passage, if you're a careful observer of the flow of the text, you, you, you have to be reeling at this point. Why do we move from that abundant provision of God in verses 14 and 15 to now we're over here with this son passing to life itself being ripped away? Now, on one hand, the, the matter is pretty simple. God is God. God's in control. He's the author of life, the sustainer of life, the final decider of life. Uh, Job said in Job 121, naked I come into the world and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. So that when I view life from the ultimate perspective, I come to understand that every hour, every second, every minute of life is truly a gift from God. That's true, yet when death comes, it always comes as a surprise. It seldom comes at an appropriate hour. It always feels like something precious is being snatched away from us. And here's the thing, we never have a say in it. We never determine it. Now, how did this uh, boy die? How long was he sick for? We don't know the answer to those questions. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. This widow and Elijah are both left with really hard questions and with their grief. And I want to say this. The Bible deals with the hard questions. Some people think that the Bible's superficial. It's not. It doesn't gloss over these things. It, it takes these things head on. It's not falsely optimistic. It doesn't say to you that if you just trust God, everything will go well for you. It never says that. No, the Bible time and time again takes our hard questions head on. And we see the widow ask her own very hard question in verse 18. She says, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now, this reaction from the widow is, is a very natural reaction when someone comes to grief. It's blaming. She blames Elijah. She, she blames herself. We, we often say very bizarre things, and we even do bizarre things when grief enters into our world. We even say things that we regret. I, I remember, and I, I wish I would have better understood this aspect of grief when I was in my high school years. I, I had a friend, and we were sophomores in high school, who lived for about a year and a half with his mom going through the end stages of terminal cancer. And we became very frustrated with this friend. I'm going to be honest with you. 
He became critical, withdrawn, judgmental. I remember the night when he was watching his mom step into eternity. He was off at the hospital. The youth group was meeting, and, and the, the youth leaders did something that was very wise. They, they let the students process what was happening so we could ask any question that we had, and, and we could also just share what was on our heart. And I said to the group, I said, you know, I'm mad at him right now. I feel like through this entire process, he's been blaming us. He's been acting as if this is our fault. We love his mom too. Why would he do that? I'll never forget the youth worker's words. He said, be patient with him. I just want you to imagine something for a moment. He said, think about all that your mother does in your world the relationship you have with her, the way that she loves you and cares for you. Think about all those future moments that you want to share with her. Think about going off to college, the day that you're going to get married, the day your first child arrives into the world. And now, try to imagine life without her. I have to be honest, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. R.T. Kendall writes this, he says, No one should be hard on someone when they say thoughtless and selfish things when they are in grief. Do you remember the story of Mary and Martha and how they blamed Jesus for coming too late when Lazarus had died? They sent word for him, and and Jesus decides to stay where he is and to continue doing ministry there. And, And then when he comes, he's met by both of them, and their response to him is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And and they'd watch time and time again as he brought people back from the brink of death. They they knew that if he had been there, that he could have done something about it. Now, how does Jesus respond? He doesn't rebuke them. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, how could you say such a thing like that to me? Don't you know that I am about my father's work? No, the text says that he wept with them. Now that is the right response to grief. Romans 12.15 tells us, weep with those who weep. Enter into the pain with them. Understand where they're coming from. Sometimes you're not going to have the right words to say in that moment. This person's life is spinning out of control. Their thoughts are spinning out of control. And beyond just blaming Elijah in this particular story, we notice that the widow also blames herself for the death of her son. She wondered if some sin in her life had brought this about, and here's the reality. We, we all have done things in our past that we're ashamed of. We have skeletons in our closet. We, we sometimes fear that when a disaster or a calamity enters into our world that somehow God's getting even with us. Now, Jesus addressed that concern in John chapter 9 as he and his disciples were doing ministry in the temple, even suffering a little of persecution, they left that temple ministry and they were passing out of the temple and they came across a man who was born blind from birth. And the disciples asked Jesus the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now for them, it's a very simple matter. 
You know, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. It's a simple system of retribution. And so you just keep things clean, simple, tight, good loops on the boxes. If that person had something bad happen in their life, then surely they did something that was wrong. Very nice, very neat. But Jesus makes it far more complex. He says, it was not this man that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. Now, I believe that we almost hold to this truth, even when grief takes us into that place where we're blaming ourselves. We have to understand that the Bible says that God doesn't bring calamity into your world to get even with you. Yes, he sovereignly chooses when bad things happen in our world. Yes, we will suffer natural consequences for bad decisions that we've made. But nowhere in the scriptures does it tell us that he operates in a system or through a system of retribution. You see, if, if God had dealt with us through a system of retribution, that means that he's taking care of evil every single time it happens. Do you know what the population of the world would be if he did that? You can guess. No, the Bible says he's long-suffering. He's patient. He's delaying things because he wants to give more and more people, in fact, all people, the opportunity to come to Christ. You know what that means this morning? That, that if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, that all of the time of your life has been a time of grace where God has been patient with you, long-suffering with you. He's giving you the opportunity to come to know his son, Jesus. That's how he works in the world. Now, as I look at Elijah's response, I, I find it incredible. Just imagine being in his shoes for a moment. This, this woman's son dies, and she comes downstairs, and she's pointing the finger in his face and blaming him. How would you respond to something like that? Well, look at verses 19 and 20, and we'll see his response. He says, He said to her, Give me your son. And, and he took him from her arms and carried him up in the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Now, what I appreciate about this is the brilliance of the response. Notice, first of all, that he doesn't panic. Notice also that he does not correct her incorrect theology. Just as an aside, on a sunny day, you may be able to talk to a friend in grief and, and show them a passage like John 9, 3. But not while they're watching their loved one pass at the hospital. You see, there's moments where there's just nothing to say. There, there's moments where just simply our presence being there, or as Elijah says, give me your son, is the right response. Now, notice that he doesn't have an answer for her, but he does have a throne to approach. You have the same for your friends. He approaches God, and like this widow, he has hard questions of God. He asks God, why have you done this to this widow? 
And there are times when God's ways are so perplexing, so mysterious. I mean, how do you make sense of babies dying? Or bad things happening to people and we look at them and we think, that person's basically a moral person. Why is something bad happening to them? There's all these other people out there doing, you know, all kinds of things. When I was in seminary, I I watched one of these senseless events unfold. We were in a, a class over the summer and there was a missionary from China who'd come back on furlough with his family. Now, his family was off in the country visiting with family. He was here for a one-week intensive course. On the second night of that course, one of, the, one of the members of that class heard this primal cry erupt from the room next to him. He rushes over and knocks on the door and comes to find out that sometime during that day, that man's son had been hit by a car and killed instantly. He'd gone through the whole day and they just couldn't reach him because classes ran until 6 o'clock at night. They jump in the car, they, they rush off two hours away where his family was. They come to find out that the boy wanted to run around with his older cousins. He was only four or five. And he just lost track of his space, his location, and he ran out into a busy road. He was hit. How do you make sense of that? Dale Ralph Davis says this, We may think we would have been kinder than God. Here is a widow, having just escaped from Baal worship, who had only begun to taste and see that Yahweh is good and he crushed her. Why didn't he wait until she was more mature in her faith? Why shatter a new convert with the dark mysteries of his way? We cannot answer such queries. We can only say this woman discovered early on that Yahweh both sustains and bewilders, both delights and devastates. And here's what I want to say as we come to this crossroads, to this intersection of the text. Have you come to terms yet in your life with the sovereignty of God? Have you come to terms with the reality that he's in control? Have you come to terms with the reality that he knows what he's doing? Here's the thing. It's arrogant of us to think that we could put God in this nice little box and tie the bow on top of the box. You cannot do that. He's infinitely above us. He knows all things, all outcomes, all circumstances. And if if he knows those things, then that means then that I can't grasp God. That's true. Moses said to the people of Israel as they were about to enter into the land in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he said that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. Here's his point. Unless God explains his mysterious ways, you are only left conjecturing. The one thing we do know from the scriptures is that we can come to a place of simple trust. Not simplistic, but simple. You are a God. I am not. I don't understand everything you do. 
but I've come to trust you, and I've come to believe what Romans 8.28 says, that he's working all things together for his good purposes for those who love him. So even those moments where we, we let out those primal cries or we see those dark mysteries of God happening before us, we can take faith knowing that he works all things together for good. Now, Elijah's prayer in response to the question is also remarkable. Notice that he's not wrestling against God in prayer. You know what it means to wrestle against God? That's when you come to one of these occasions in your life and you say, I don't know why God did this, therefore I am no longer going to trust him. No, he wrestles with God. And as he wrestles with God, as he asks his hard questions, it leads him then to make a bold request in prayer. In verse 21, it says, Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Now, you have to understand that this is an incredible moment in the Scriptures. I mean, where does this come from? Up to this point in all the Bible, no one has ever been raised from the dead. Okay, we don't even have a hint of this. We don't even have someone suggesting, God, would you do this up to this point in the Bible? So how dare he ask this really unprecedented thing of God? It's not like Elijah had, this is how God always works, some kind of manual like that. No, he's, he's going on, he's operating on one thing, faith. There's some sense in the man that that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than anything he could ask, think, or imagine. So he steps way out on a limb and he asks God to raise the boy. Now, wouldn't it be nice in the life of faith if the Bible wasn't so much a book of stories, but it was more of like an operator's manual, a step-by-step guide for how we should approach things in life. Like, say, for example, you're dealing with impatience and trials. Okay, well, I'll just come to the Bible and, okay, for this particular matter, it's step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. I'm all set now. Well, if it's a particularly hard one, let's go to step six, seven, and eight. Wouldn't that be great? That's not how the Bible works. Thankfully, God gives us much in the scriptures, but he doesn't give us step-by-steps. He gives us principles. Why does he do that? I believe that God guides through principles and not step-by-steps in order to make plenty of room for faith. He doesn't want us to be robots following the steps. No, Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please him. So it's in the struggle which creates the urgency within us as we're clinging to those principles and promises from the scriptures that we draw nearer to him, that we trust him beyond the limits. What does it mean to trust God beyond the limits? It means that either he shows up or I'm ruined. So Elijah prays beyond the limits and God shows up. In verse 23, or 22 and onward, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. 
And Elijah took the child and, and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. In your mouth is true. Now, R.T. Kendall says this. He says, Elijah's question was not answered, but his prayer was. Now, let me just ask you for a moment, which would you prefer? Would you rather have your questions answered, all of your questions answered, or your prayer answered? He says, had Elijah waited for his question to be answered, he would never have prayed. He never would have. And you know, there are countless people out there that are settling on this thought that when God explains to me why he allows suffering, then and only then will I believe in him. So the problem with that line of thought is that you're never going to have all of your questions answered this side of eternity. So do you want to lose your soul? Waiting on the questions to be answered? Or do you want to pray? God, have mercy on me, a sinner, even while you haven't had answers to all the questions. Now, I specifically use the word all there because God has answered many of our questions. You see, when you go into the scriptures, there are real answers for real questions. And the ultimate question is answered for us in the scriptures. And the ultimate question is this, does God have the right to be God over your life? Does he? And the answer the scriptures gives us is yes, absolutely. God has the right to be God over your life. How do I know that? Because even here in this text, we see that he is the Lord who disarms death. If he has authority over that final boundary, that final border, then he must be someone who has the right to be God over my life. And the widow observes this in verse 24. She says, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth, or you could also translate that reliable. You see, this widow has come to understand that if God has authority over death, then God's totally reliable. You can put your trust in him. You can let him lead your life even when you don't have all the questions answered. Now, I love that this particular miracle, this son being raised from the dead, points to the greatest miracle of all, Jesus' resurrection. When you think about the gospel message, it's really just two big points, historical points that happened in time that we put our faith in. Jesus died, Jesus rose again. It's pretty simple, right? But again, it's a profound message. He died on the cross. What was the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross? He died in my place. He is the Lord who disarms sin. He took or bore our sins upon himself. And the Bible says if you put your faith in him, then he removes the guilt of your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. But what about the tomb? Well, the empty tomb was where the curse of sin was dealt with. The curse of sin is death. Death is the ultimate barrier. We live in decaying bodies. Our days are numbered. We all must face it. 
when Jesus rose from the dead, he also proved not only is he the Lord who disarms sin, but he is also the Lord who disarms death. His resurrection is like a a proof of purchase of your very life. I want you to think of the resurrection as being similar to a receipt. And when you go shopping, of course, you purchase your items, and, and it's very customary for them to say, would you like your receipt? And of course, it's probably a good idea to say, yeah. Because I don't know about you, but when I go into stores, I get somewhat absent-minded. You know, Katie told me to get this second or third item, and I only remembered number one. I text her. I'm going right back into that store again. Now, say I walk back into that store with the items I've already purchased, and a security guard stops me and says, excuse me, sir, can I see what's inside of your bag? How would it go for me if I didn't have a receipt? Well, maybe it'll go well, but probably not. But if I have a receipt, I can say to the security guard, you know, Mr. Security Person, I've already paid for these items, and I don't have to pay for them again. You see, the resurrection is like a a giant receipt stamped across history for those who've put their faith in Jesus. Jesus is saying, through the resurrection, I've paid for their life, and I don't have to pay for it again. In fact, the resurrection is the central reality of the Christian faith. Everything about the Christian faith hinges upon it. Either Jesus rose again from the dead and you have life if you put your faith in him, or he didn't rise from the dead and you didn't. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, which means this, no resurrection no proof of purchase, no life. Do you believe in the resurrection? I mean, really believing in it. What I mean by really believing in it is not that, yeah, I intellectually agree with this, and when I show up to church on Easter Sunday, you know, I'm pretty motivated by the story of the resurrection. No, I mean that the resurrection is the central motivating reality of your life. Not your career, not your possessions, not your ambition, not your reputation, not, not your friendships, not, not your familial relationships. No, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that the Lord of history entered into time, he became the Lord who disarms sin, he became the Lord who disarms death. Is that the central motivating reality of your life? I'm going to close with these words from Timothy Keller. I quote them often, but they're so consequential. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue of which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if he did, he's Lord of all. He has final authority. Can I ask you to bow your heads? Just get quiet for a moment. Does God have your attention this morning? There's so many things distracting our attention. Issues in our life. 
distractions. For this moment, give him your whole attention, your entire attention. At the end of the service, we're going to have an elder up front. We'll have an elder in the back of the church. And if you would like prayer, they're going to be here. Josiah and the team will be playing the last song, and you can just come up and they'll quietly pray with you. Maybe you're ready to make a next step of faith with Jesus, either putting your trust in him for the first time or committing to deeper obedience in some area of your life. Or maybe there's some other matter on your heart. We're a church that believes in prayer. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So let me pray and then the team will lead and you can come forward for prayer. Lord, you are the Lord who disarms death. This morning, we, we respond to your word by acknowledging your power and your authority. If you have the power over death, it means that you are totally reliable. If you rose from the dead, it means everything about our life should be motivated by that reality. Lord, for the one who has not placed their faith in you, I pray they respond today. For the one who has walked away, call them back. For the one who is walking day by day, energize them with the power of your resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.